Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22, chapter 21, excuse me, in verse 1. We'll read through chapter 22 and verse 9. Jeremiah 21, 1 through 22, 9. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Maaseah, saying, Inquire of Yahweh for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps Yahweh will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus shall you say to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and, a, and strong arm in anger and in fury, and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this land, both man and beast. They shall die of of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares Yahweh, I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and into the hand of their enemies into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, or spare them, or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I've set my face against the city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. And to the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of David. Thus says Yahweh, Execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares Yahweh. You who say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares Yahweh. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all that is around her. Thus says Yahweh, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says Yahweh, Do justice and righteousness. And deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident, alien, the fatherless, 
and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares Yahweh, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says Yahweh concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons. And they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has Yahweh dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of Yahweh their God and worshipped other gods and served them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on our souls, for when we, in as vile a manner as Zedekiah displays here, come to your word, come to the preaching of the word, not wanting to hear the word of Yahweh, but a word from Yahweh. So Father, forgive us our pride, our arrogance, And grant humble hearts that fear you. Not simply that want to escape your judgment, but hearts that fear you. That will hear your word. And walk in the way of life. And surrender to your will. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen. We come to a new major unit in our study of Jeremiah that runs from chapters 21 all the way through chapter 45. You'll notice in this next portion of Jeremiah, there's more prose and less poetry. Also, whereas it was difficult to date most of the material prior to this point, from this point forward, there will be many circumstances, many Uh, narratives, many settings given such that we can figure out where we are historically with a lot more accuracy. Though there's more chronology from this point forward in Jeremiah, it's not to say that things are chronological. We can put numbers to a lot of the instances we'll come across, but those numbers are not in sequence. They're not arranged that way. There's a theological or some other kind of reason as to why they're arranged as they are. Immediately, chapters 21 through 23 form a subsection, denouncing first the kings and then the prophets. The kings denounced in 21.1 through 23.8, the prophets then in 23.9 through 40. We'll take the section dealing with the kings in two chunks, this morning dealing with 21.1 through 22.9. And what we'll see is that for better or worse, 
King and kingdom are wed. This morning we'll largely see it for the worse. But the very fact that king and kingdom can be wed holds out hope for the better. Chapter opens with more promise, more hope than we've yet seen in Jeremiah, seemingly. We've jumped ahead to the last reigning king of Judah, Zedekiah. And it appears at first glance that we've jumped ahead spiritually as well. Remember in chapter 18 through 20, Jeremiah's message was constantly rejected by the people as they conspire to silence him. And this climaxes with Pasher, the son of Emmer, beating him and putting him in the stocks. When we come to chapter 21, though, the word of God is solicited by the king. But Zedekiah will prove to be a weak and fearful king. His was the kind of fear that rather than avoiding danger, does nothing but cause him to run into it. He was afraid of the king of Babylon. And so for this reason, fearful of this impending doom, he consults Jeremiah multiple times. But he's also afraid of his officials and will not stand up for Jeremiah in front of them for fear of what might happen to his own position. The one thing Zedekiah certainly was not afraid of was Yahweh. He was afraid of his judgment, but he wasn't afraid of the judge. He did not fear God. Chapter 37, 1-2 gives this sad overview of him. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of Yahweh that he spoke through Jeremiah, the prophet. 2 Kings 25.19 tells us he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done. He solicits the word the way a pagan might consult a crystal ball or a horoscope. He wants a good omen. He wants a sign of blessing. He has no real interest, though, in obedience, submission to the word. And so many today consult the word of God in the visible church. They look for blessing on their ways rather than than submitting to God's blessed ways. They don't wish for God to tell them how to live. They want to hear God speak well of their lives. Zedekiah sends to Jeremiah, Pasher and Zephaniah. This is a different Pasher than the one we encountered previously. That Pasher was the son of Immer. He was a priest. And he's very likely already suffered the judgment that was pronounced on him by Jeremiah, having been carried captive out of Judah, out of Jerusalem during a previous siege. This pastor was the son of Malchiah. He appears not to be a priest, but an official. And even so, he's of the same ilk of that other pastor. He later advocates for Jeremiah's execution in chapter 38. 
Zephaniah was a priest. He was second in command only to the high priest, according to chapter 52 and verse 24. He appears to take the position abdicated by the previous pasher. That previous pasher, you remember he was said to be the chief officer in the house of Yahweh, chapter 20 and verse 1. He served to maintain order in the temple. And the reason why we would say it appears that Zephaniah takes that office is because of what we read in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, verses 26 through 27. Yahweh has made you, this is Shemaiah chiding Zephaniah. He says, Yahweh has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest to have charge in the house of Yahweh. So you remember the position that Pasher had was chief officer in the house of Yahweh. And now we're told that Yahweh's made him priest to have charge in the house of Yahweh over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. You see, this is exactly what Pasher did to Jeremiah. Indeed, he asked, Shemaiah now chiding, Zephaniah asked, Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? Why didn't Zephaniah act? Well, perhaps he recalls the guy who previously had that office, Pasher, and how it worked for him whenever he put Jeremiah in the stocks. The last guy who was in this position and did that to Jeremiah got carried off to Babylon. That's why I have not done anything. These men are sent to Jeremiah at this point, and they are sent to ask him to make inquiry of Yahweh, verse 2, chapter 21. And the reason for this inquiry is because the king of Babylon's making war against them. Now the city has already been besieged twice at this point. The first instance came during the reign of Jehoiakim. And the king of Babylon came, invaded, and subjugated him. He, he remained king. He was a vassal king. He remained king, but he did so only for three years. And after which, uh, he had rebelled. After his rebellion, he dies after that. His son comes to sit on the throne, Jehoiachin, who reigns only three months before Nebuchadnezzar returns. Second siege. Defeats him and establishes Mataniah as king then under him, changing his name to Zedekiah, this Zedekiah. So this is going to be the final siege now that Jerusalem will experience. After this, she's completely destroyed. What is Zedekiah hoping to hear? It's clear that he doesn't want to hear the word of Yahweh. He wants to hear a word from Yahweh. Perhaps Yahweh will deal with us according to all His wonderful deeds and will make Him withdraw from us. He doesn't want to inquire of Yahweh what the word is. He hopes for a particular word. You remember whenever the Assyrians attacked centuries earlier under the reign of King Hezekiah? They messed up by speaking blasphemously of Yahweh. 
such that Yahweh sent an angel who destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian army in one night, and so that Sennacherib returned to Nineveh. In that instance, it wasn't that Israel, Judah, was so good, but that the Assyrians were so bad. And it seems that now Zedekiah is hoping, hoping for something, something similar to that episode. It's not that they've repented. It's that Babylon is so wicked. And the phrase, the wonderful deeds, perhaps Yahweh will deal with this according to all His wonderful deeds. This recalls the great acts of God in redeeming them out of Egypt, which God made it clear He redeemed them, not because of anything in them, but because of how great He is. Now this siege begins, we learn from Kings and Chronicles, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's 11-year reign. It's going to be a three-year siege. So this siege, it seems we're at an early point in it. It's going to last upwards of three years. And this means that Jeremiah has been prophesying well over 30 years. He's been prophesying judgment and calling for repentance. They haven't repented. Zedekiah. Just hopes, perhaps, perhaps. Why would he think perhaps? 30 years of ministry that Jeremiah has been telling them that this judgment is coming. And he thinks perhaps? How often do we expect God to act contrary to His Word? How often do we open it up? Expecting it to somehow, some way, condone our sin now. Every time we sin, we presumptuously think to ourselves, perhaps. The serpents whisper. Ask, has God really said? Oh no, you will not die, you'll be like God. And we answer, Perhaps. God has said the wages of sin is death. And yet, we think this time, perhaps. And to our perhaps, the immutable I am of heaven always answers certainly not. To Zedekiah, the God of Israel declares, verse 4, that He will make all their efforts futile. He will turn their weapons of war back on them. They are shooting blanks with crippling recoil. It would have been better had they not tried to fight at all. Second, he says that He fights against them, chapter 21 and verse 5. Ultimately, it's not Nebuchadnezzar that proves their enemy, but Yahweh Himself. They war not against some limited earthly potentate, but against the omnipotent Lord of heaven, 
In 2 Chronicles, Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar is put this way. Chapter 36, 11 through 13. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of Yahweh. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, the God of Israel. When Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, he breaks an oath that he swore before God. He rebels against the God of Israel. And then this language of the outstretched arm or the strong hand of Yahweh is rooted in their exodus. Deuteronomy 4.34, Moses asked Israel, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? But now this language is used, not of their being delivered from the hand of their enemies, but they're being delivered into the hand of their enemies. By the same strong and mighty arm that brought them out of Egypt, now He will send them into Babylon. And the third, verse 6, chapter 21, He will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. And again, recall in the Exodus, both man and beast of Egypt, how they were struck. And now He's doing the same to His people. Those who survived the pestilence, the sword, and the famine will be taken captive, executed by Nebuchadnezzar, verse 7. The pitiless fate of many of these officials, expressly named, including Zephaniah, is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 25, 18-20. But none of them have to face anything near the grim judgment that comes upon Zedekiah himself. 2 Kings 25, 6-7. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. One of the reasons why we think to ourselves, perhaps, the chief reason why this world thinks to itself, perhaps, is because we don't know where the lines are drawn. We think that this world is against us, and all of our dreams and aspirations and hopes, and God is behind us, cheering and empowering and encouraging us. The world is against us. God is for us. We think God is on our side when in reality we have rebelled against Him. We are traitors. We think our King fights for us when He fights against us. The world may be at our throats, 
but we are all pirates on the same mutinous boat. The flag we fly stands in rebellion against the king, regardless of how we might relate to anyone else on the ship. R.C. Sproul writes that we are shocked by the idea that we are saved from God reveals two crucial shortcomings in our understanding. We fail to understand who God is. We fail to understand who we are. Our view of God is too low and our view of mankind is too high. This is why we think to ourselves, perhaps. Because we think far too low of our God and far too much of ourself. So perhaps. But the Bible is clear. Not only are we at Are we hostile and at enmity against God? His holy wrath burns against the children of man. You need to be saved. And what you need to be saved from principally is not a hopeless, aimless, meaningless kind of depression. What you need to be saved from primarily is not sickness, suffering, or death. What we need to be saved from is far more than a world full of injustice, war, oppression, and wickedness. It's not even enough to say merely that you need to be saved from hell. Fundamentally, what fallen man needs to be saved from is the eternal, just wrath of God Almighty. We need to be saved from God. That's where the lines are drawn. Now, whenever a king inquires, as Zedekiah does, the answer must involve more than himself. And so, Jeremiah is to say to Zedekiah, verse 3, but then he is also to say a word, verse 8, to the people. And the word to the people is that there are two ways set before them, a way of life and a way of death. And this kind of language is rooted in the covenant. It is replete throughout the Proverbs. Wisdom literature. He sets before them two ways. Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 through 20 is perhaps the place to go to to see exactly what this kind of language is expressing, where its roots are. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in His ways, By keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. (coughs) And Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life 
that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Life and death put before them in relation to the land and the covenant. But at this point now, judgment is inescapable. It's not a question of staying in the land or being driven out, but of survival. 21 verse 10, Yahweh has set His face against the city for harm and not for good. And so it is that those who fight will find God wielding a sword, and those who surrender will find God wielding a rod. If they surrender to the Chaldeans, they will live. If they stay in the city, they will die. And this kind of language, you see how it could sound treasonous, exactly the kind of charges they will bring against Jeremiah. And it would be treasonous, save for this fact, that Judah is not fundamentally a monarchy, but a theocracy. She is ruled over by God. So to disobey this word to surrender, that would be treasonous. What looks like treason then is really loyalty. What looks like loyalty is really treason. Saints, may we never forget where our ultimate loyalty lies. This may mean we are libeled with the worst of accusations. Situations may come where we may really appear as though we are traitors and cowards. But remember Jesus' words. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whenever Peter was dragged before the highest court of his own people, he boldly declared we must obey God rather than men. So insofar as we're able, let us be subject to the governing authorities. But only insofar as we are able. Without disobeying our Lord. Finally, in answer to this inquiry, we have a word to the house of the king of Judah. Verse 11. It's likely that this word dates from an earlier period. Because it calls for repentance, holding out hope, then if they should repent. But as it's placed here, <coughs> it's an earlier episode. As it's placed here, it demonstrates, I believe this is the point, what Zedekiah should have done. The kings are obligated to, verse 12, execute justice. And because of how our republic is structured, this is not a 
an idea we often associate with the highest power in the land. But according to God, it's central. Whenever we think of justice, we don't think of the president, we think of our courts. And this is a mistake because Romans 13 makes it very clear that the point of all human government as established by God is that she should wield the sword against the evildoer. So can you sense, in light of this, more clearly why Solomon prayed? 1 Kings 3.9 Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? You see, in Solomon's mind, governing the people meant discerning between good and evil. And the gates were the place of, this, of judgment, mourning the ideal time before the heat of the day. This is why Absalom's coup makes sense. How he started. First, Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 4, he rose early in the day, he went and sat at the gate, and he would bemoan to those who came with their cases, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, that I were judge in the land. He's not asking for a court position. He's saying, oh, that I were king. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. How was the king to execute justice? When he sat on his throne, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, told him that he was to make for himself a copy of the law approved by the priest to have with him and read all the days of his life. He was to execute justice according to God's law. The consequence, if he should not, is that Yahweh's wrath would go forth like a fire with none to quench it. And then the judgment turns from the king to his kingdom. Behold, I am against you, and it's a feminine you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain. This is a reference to Jerusalem that stood out as a hill, a rock, a refuge uh, in this area. And this is the same reason why the Jebusites, the original inhabitants, mocked David, because it stood like a rock on the plain. So that now Jerusalem is repeating the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, repeating their same folly. They said, concerning David, you come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Second Samuel 5, 6. But we're told, nonetheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And now, the inhabitants of the city of David repeat the same kind of folly. Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our habitations? And to this Yahweh says, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. What does this mean? I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all that is around her. Now, it wasn't a really heavily forested area around Jerusalem. What is this a reference to? 
Whenever we read about the royal palace built by Solomon, it consisted of several buildings that were connected together. And one of those buildings was called the House of the Forest of Lebanon because of the intense amount of Lebanon cedar that was used in building that house. And that house in particular was the one that served as a kind of armory and treasury. That's where Solomon put those, those gold shields was in the house of the forest of Lebanon. He will kindle a fire in the most guarded place that will burn out from the middle and consume all around her. When there's a fire in the palace, the city burns. Whenever the attic floods, so does the house. King and kingdom are wed. And this is not something alien to us. Adam was placed in the garden as a king. And when he fell, all under his feet, creation and his progeny, both, were cursed. Because of his sin, we're all condemned. God's wrath is against us and there is no refuge that can protect us from his face. We need a new king. We need to be born into a new kingdom. This principle of king and kingdom being wed carries over into chapter 22. It's more prominent here, I believe. The same groups are basically addressed... Hear the word of Yahweh, O King of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people. This time, though in 22, 1 through 9, we don't have each group being addressed specifically. We have a, a word that's spoken generally, and the applications are left to us if they're more specific to one of these groups. Again, there's the call to do justice and righteousness, deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who's been robbed. Chapter 22, verse 3. And we instinctually think because of this, this would apply foremost to the king, and it does. But in chapter 7, Jeremiah announced the whole nation saying, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. Now the reason they are to do this, do justice and righteousness, the reason they are to do this is twofold, involving both blessing and curse. First, if they obey this word, kings will enter the gates and sit on the throne of David, verse 4. If you indeed obey this word, there shall enter by the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David. The same language was used in chapter 17. So the imagery is of kings entering the gates in victory procession. So instead of a king holed up inside of the city... 
in fear. The promise, if they would do justice, is of their king coming into the city in victory, having defeated their enemies. And second, should they not obey, though, the house of David will become, verse 5, a desolation. If you will not obey these words, this house shall become a desolation. This house is then spoken of like Gilead or Lebanon. These are the forested areas. And the destroyer will come with his swords as though they were a lumberjack's axe and gather them for the bonfire. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And the desolation will be such that all who walk by ask, why did Yahweh deal such with this city? And the answer is the one we see again and again throughout the book, because they have forsaken the covenant of Yahweh their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Now again, with this, it appears that we're dealing with an earlier word of Jeremiah whenever there's still hope that should they repent, they could be spared invasion and captivity, stay in the land. But as it's been arranged by the Holy Spirit, this earlier prophecy comes after this word to Zedekiah of certain destruction. And I think the point is by going back to the past, there's a hope actually awakened for their future. It happened suddenly at first by the house of the king of Judah being referred to multiple times in our passage, 21 verse 12, 22 verse 1, 22 verse 4, as the house of David. 2 Samuel 7, God promised David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. What's going to happen with David is to be seen as distinct from what happened to Saul. His house will not be eliminated altogether. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, from this forest of the house of the king of Judah, the house of David, from this leveled forest, ashen, burnt forest, there will be left a stump. And from that stump, a branch. I don't want to dive in too deeply into where we'll end up next time we study Jeremiah in chapter 23. 
But after following this, we see a word directed to Shalom, Jehoiakim, and Coniah, who along with Zedekiah are the last reigning kings of Judah. After these words to them specifically, there is a word in chapter 23 against the shepherds. Generally, a word against the kings. And then following that rebuke, we read, Behold, the days are coming. Chapter 23, verses 5 through 6, declares Yahweh, When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Do you see now why I believe the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah, so arranged these prophecies to where you have earlier ones that speak for the king to execute justice because if he does so, there is this hope of them not being annihilated by Babylon. That came earlier. Now certain judgment is doom and, and doom is pronounced against Zedekiah, but he's arranged it such this, is, this earlier prophecy that holds out this hope from the house of David comes afterwards, and it's followed by this promise of one righteous branch from the house of David coming forward and executing justice and righteousness in the land. What does this mean? It means salvation for His people. It goes on and it says... In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. How can it be good news of a king to come who executes justice when we are all wicked sinners? Because he not only executes righteousness, Righteousness was executed on Him. And He is our righteousness. King and kingdom were wed. This was their doom. King and kingdom are wed. This is our hope. It's grace that God deals with His elect according to His wonderful deeds and not our wicked ones. And giving His King to be our righteousness, to suffer His justice in our place. By Him, He causes us to be born again into the kingdom of God. Colossians 1, 13-14 tells us that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He will reign forever. Of His kingdom there will be no end. Sinner, you need to be saved from God. And therefore, your only hope is to be saved by God. And that is what He has done in Christ Saved sinners from his own justice by bearing it himself. Hear not a word from Yahweh according to your own sinful desires, but hear the word of Yahweh. Repent 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we deserve no such king. Exile from the face of your glory and benevolence and grace to know only your just and holy wrath is all that we're owed. But praise be to you for your great king who makes all things new including us, and whose reign will never end. All glory, all praise be to you, Father. May we rejoice. May we share this good news. In Christ's name, amen.